For KOSU, I'm Michael Cross, and it's time for This Week in Oklahoma Politics, along with Republican political consultant Neva Hill and civil rights attorney Ryan Kiesel joining me over Zoom video conference. Lawmakers are getting ready to discuss redistricting in a special session less than two weeks away. Earlier this week, legislative leaders released a new congressional map which moves District 5 into more rural counties east of the metro and adds southwestern and parts of northwestern Oklahoma City into District 3, which includes the Panhandle. Ryan, what are your thoughts on this new map? And I think it's it's an utterly ridiculous map. I think it's difficult to defend putting the Plaza District neighborhood in Oklahoma City uh, in a congressional district that's shared with communities in the panhandle. Uh, you know, the, the continuity of community, uh, the similarities of political interest and, uh, and challenges that are being faced uh, in disparate parts of the state, um, you know, deserve representation. Uh, and what we've done here is, or what we've seen done or, or attempted to be done, uh, we'll, we'll know if the legislature is able to pass this or not, is to break up the fifth congressional district that was won by a Democrat, Kendra Horn, in 2018, uh, went back Republican in 2020 with the election of uh, uh, Congresswoman Stephanie Bice. And you know this is, this is a protectionist, a partisan protectionist map. Now, the Supreme Court a few years ago told us that you know, pure political gerrymandering cases aren't subject to review by federal courts. However, there are a number of other challenges that could be based in either federal law or in state constitutional uh, requirements for reapportionment, you know, that could lead to this being challenged. But even before we get to the point where we're talking about lawsuits and courts, um, there's there's one voice, and you know, either of you correct me if I'm wrong, but there's one voice that we haven't heard from here, and I think it's the the one voice that could actually determine the outcome of whether or not the Senate and the House put these particular maps in front of Governor Stitt, and that's Mayor David Holt of Oklahoma City. I think that uh, it is a if there's anyone that can change this right now, it's the Republican mayor of Oklahoma City, David Holt, stepping in and saying Oklahoma City, Oklahoma County deserves or at least most of Oklahoma County deserves to have a one member in Congress. I know that I've heard some folks say, well, Oklahoma County or Oklahoma City would have three members of Congress. Isn't that even better? If it's three person, if it's if it's the problem of three people, it's the problem of no one. You know, they, they need somebody who's dedicated and accountable to to that community. And this breakup just doesn't seem to work. Neva. Well, I think it's it's something that's being uh, talked about that's just not a problem. I mean, when you look at these districts, I mean, what they've done is what they were charged and tasked to do. And that is evenly divide the state's population uh, among five congressional districts. That has been accomplished. Uh, the congressional districts, first, second, and third, uh, right on the money at 791,000 plus the number. Um, and the proposed uh, congressional maps for districts four and five, uh, basically one, one person off in each of those. I mean, you can't get any better in terms of, uh, of laying out the districts. And I think it's important to note that 87% of all Oklahomans remain in their, in the same congressional district they're in today. So, um, 
they've done an excellent job. I mean, the the idea that you can't have Northwest Oklahoma in with uh, Central Oklahoma in a congressional district is is a bogus argument because uh, Congressman Lucas, uh, at the beginning of his congressional career, had a district that ran from the Panhandle to Northeast Oklahoma City. So there have been instances where, in order to make the maps uh, and the math work out in terms of equal population that this has occurred. So, and I think when you look beyond that, you look to the House and Senate districts uh, in the legislative uh, uh, part of it, that you find that uh, 80% of Oklahomans are going to be, if these proposals are passed and signed by the governor, 80% of these folks are going to be in the same state house district that they're currently in. So when we saw the, the increase in population and yet after a record number of 30 public hearings across the state with significant input by Oklahomans across the board, I think you have to applaud this effort. And frankly, I think we'll see the legislature come in in special session, pass these redistricting uh, proposals, and that the governor will ultimately sign them. If this- I think... Go ahead, Michael. Well, if this gets challenged in court and uh, basically a judge says, well, now now you can't have this election under this situation, what does this do to 22 and 22? Well, I mean, it's a hypothetical, but I think it's a I think it's a hypothetical that really doesn't merit a lot of conversation because these maps are going to pass muster. They are going to, I think, be passed. And I think, you know, the, the idea that somehow Guyman or the, the Panhandle area has nothing in um, nothing in common with the, the South Oklahoma City uh, portion that's been drawn into that uh, current proposed map is again, I think, a flawed argument because the Hispanic population in both of those areas is is very comparable. I mean, so their impact and the concerns in school districts and their communities are are very similar. So the idea that people are being disenfranchised or somehow that this is uh, this is just an attempt to gerrymander, which has been kind of the the toss out argument that uh, Democrat leadership. Uh, seems to have laid on the table uh, this week once these maps have been out uh, uh, for discussion. I just don't see that it's going to get any traction, either with the public or certainly with lawmakers. But if you've got Oklahoma County, which if you look at Oklahoma County's population in and of itself could be a congressional district. And I think that, you know, there's some argument about whether or not Tinker should be carved off of that and, and kept in the fourth congressional district, along with Lawton and Altus uh, Air Force bases. I mean, that leaves... Uh, open the question of what happens to Vance or the artillery uh, depot in in McAllister. But um, Oklahoma County in in and of itself could be a congressional district. And so we've, we've, you know, recurring themes on this program have been about the the upward trajectory of Oklahoma City in particular. And then, of course, Oklahoma County as a result of that, in terms of becoming a, a leading city, not just in the state, but in the nation. And now we've seen it divided up. And the only real uh, rationale for that, that that seems to hold any water is that they Republicans in the legislature used their political power to carve up the um, most likely Democratic congressional district in the state. I, you know, I, I just don't see any other reason for that. Now, that, you know, it's I can't really blame them uh, for the power grab. I think that, you know, if Democrats were in power, I mean, we, we've seen uh, districts drawn by Democrats that are, uh, you know, that, you know, try to preserve democratic power in the past. 
I think the real question is, you know, should politicians be drawing these maps to begin with? And I think that, you know, looking at this, the answer to me is no. And it'll be interesting if if Mayor Holt uh, is steps up in, a, in, in advance of even your question, Michael, I think there's the political question at the legislature. I think if Mayor Holt stepped up and said Oklahoma City deserves one member of Congress that is accountable to Oklahoma City, that could change the dynamic of the legislature. Short of that, I think Neve is right. I think that these these probably pass, and you know we'll see if there's litigation or not. And I think your point, Michael, about the uh, the fact that uh, and Ryan about the fact that the major military bases are staying in their current congressional districts is a significant point because this is something I think that everyone looked at and their ability to maintain those uh, those boundaries in a fashion where these military communities remain intact in their same current congressional districts is a very important thing for Oklahoma. And again, back to the point that I think is the overarching uh, point to this whole discussion is that 87% of Oklahomans remain in the same congressional district they are in today. So the there had to be some shifts. The shifts are very slight. I mean, numerically, they're very small. And so to seize on this notion of just trying to find some way to attack these congressional maps because uh, they don't like the, the, uh, the current proposal, I just think it's going to be a very weak argument. The Pardon Parole Board once again recommended clemency for death row inmate Julius Jones. Just like it did in September, the board recommended his sentence be reduced to life with the possibility of parole. Governor Stitt has said he wouldn't make a final decision on Jones' fate until after Monday's hearing. This all comes after last Thursday when the state executed its first prisoner since 2015. So, Neva, do you think the governor will follow the board's recommendation? I don't know. I think we'll have to wait and see. It's certainly um, it, it's certainly something that uh, has the attention of uh, folks here and across the country. It, the last time an Oklahoma governor um, granted clemency to a death row inmate was uh, back in 2010 with uh, Governor Brad Henry. Uh, prior to that, uh, Governor Fallon three times, I think, uh, had a recommendation from the, uh, the board for clemency on death row inmates and did not uh, uh, did and denied all three of those uh, recommendations. So um, there's a lot of speculation, a lot of uh, conjecture on, you know, the pros and cons of what that decision may be. I think we'll just have to wait and see. Ryan. Well, you've got to think that these are anguishing days for Julius Jones. I mean, uh, Julius is currently on death watch at the Oklahoma State Penitentiary in, in McAllister, uh, which in and of itself is a, uh, you know, a, a form of, uh, of, of mental torture. Uh, you're, you're, you're taken from your, your normal cell and H unit, which uh, for folks that have not been to the underground uh, H unit at Oklahoma State Penitentiary where death row inmates are, uh, are uh, warehoused in Oklahoma, uh, it's an awful place. And then you go to death watch, which is even worse. And so to have your fate uh, in the hands of a single human being uh, who can you know, decide whether or not in a in a matter of days, you live or die, um, has to be in and of itself uh, a form of a punishment that's excruciating beyond belief uh, or beyond imagination. Also, beyond imagination is the uh, the pain that I'm sure that the Howell family is, is feeling by having the memory of uh, Paul Howell's murder brought up over and over and over again and having to, to go through this process. Um, I think that this is one of the reasons that the, the death penalty is an insufficient way to, to punish individuals and that oftentimes we see the, you know, the victims' families, as Christy Shepard 
uh, a, a victim uh, of a, a family member of a victim herself told the pardon and parole board um, and, and the Oklahoma Death Penalty Commission, uh, bipartisan group of Oklahomans that looked at whether or not the death penalty is effective and whether or not the death penalty should be carried out in Oklahoma. And the conclusion was no. Um, you know, time and again, we're, we're reminded that Oklahoma is simply not competent to carry out executions. Last week, we had uh, reporters, including AP reporter Sean Murphy, coming out of witnessing the execution and saying of Mr. Warner or, or um, uh, Mr. Grant and coming out and saying he had uh, he vomited and it was uh, violent and brutal. Uh, and then the state the next day says everything went according to plan. Um, you know, that lack of transparency, that kind of Orwellian uh, disconnect between what seasoned journalists saw with their own eyes and what the state is reporting should raise concerns of all Oklahomans. Fortunately, Governor Stitt doesn't have to make up a decision, make it make his decision based on whether he supports the death penalty in general in this instance. Here, the Partner Parole Board, again, three to one vote uh, twice now, uh, including appointees of the governor siding in favor of clemency, coming out and saying this man's life needs to be spared. And, and that ranges from Mr. Jones is innocent, which is what I believe, uh, to there's enough doubt that we shouldn't take this irreversible action as a state. So, you know, I, I, I sincerely hope that, that the governor uh, grants clemency, spares Mr. Jones' life for, for whatever reason or however he's inclined to do that, and, you know, and recognizes that this is not a referendum on capital punishment or the death penalty, but as a referendum on this particular case, this particular man, and at the very least, there is doubt and his life should be saved. A federal judge in Oklahoma City blocked a controversial anti-protester law from taking effect. House Bill 1674, which was supposed to start Monday, would protect drivers who strike street protesters from prosecution and would fine organizations participating in the protests. The Oklahoma State Conference of the NAACP is challenging HB 1674 as unconstitutional. Ryan, will the injunction have any impact on the challenge? Well, I, I don't know that it will have an impact on the the ultimate determination, you know, how, how Judge Cothran will ultimately rule on the constitutionality of, of this uh, of this bill. Um, but it does give us a hint into how the how the judge is approaching uh, this case. And you know, she was very critical uh, of the state's argument that uh, the, the law is specific enough to warn the people that might violate it what action they would have to take to actually violate the law. Uh, and what the punishment would be, um, you know, that's that's uh, that's considered vague, and and vague laws like that violate the due process clause of the United States Constitution. It also raises uh, uh, additional questions whenever the prohibited action could overlap with protected speech rights, which it does here. Uh, and so, uh, there's an even heightened standard for the state to meet, and and the judge did not seem to signal that she thought that the state was going to get there. And you know, I think with a lot of laws like this one, this this anti-protest bill, um, oftentimes there's more attention paid to the talking points. Uh, there's more attention paid to the floor debate, uh, to being able to go back home and talk about whether you're for or against this than there is on the actual language of the law. Um, and you know, the if you read the language of law, it's very confusing. It's it's not very well drafted. It leaves a lot of room for interpretation, and I think that. That's what Judge Cothran in the Western District felt. That's why this injunction's gone in place. And you know, she was she was cleared. She said, "This is this is not you know how I'm going to ultimately resolve the matter. Uh, mm -hmm. That remains to be determined." 
but it sure looks like the state has a, a really uh, steep hill to climb if they want to protect this law uh, and the if the legislature wants to do something, they're probably going to have to come back and uh, and pass a more narrowly tailored piece of legislation. Neva, I would agree. I would agree with Ryan in in that what you're saying about the kind of the flawed scope and and the writing of this particular piece of legislation certainly uh, it has raised a lot of issues. And I think uh, Judge Cothran, I mean, while the issue before her was was merely the preliminary injunction, you're right, Ryan, if you read what she said, her remarks are, are fairly uh, terse and fairly uh, straightforward, even though she said that uh, it, this should not appear final, that's not the intent. I mean, she's dealing with the issue at hand. I mean, when she really faulted the, the state's reasoning in terms of their defense of the, the, of the law uh, and used words like that it was unconstitutionally vague, as I think you mentioned, I mean, those certainly, um, those certainly point to uh, a lot of questions in terms of um, whether this will ultimately be able to uh, uh, pass the pass the legal challenge. And I think, uh, I, you know, I think that the points that have been raised, I mean, not being an attorney, but just reading on the surface of what she is uh, uh, highlighting in terms of points that she's looking at with respect to this particular House bill that was passed, I think that uh, it's going to give pause to everyone to wait and see what the court ultimately decides. Neva, if Judge Cothran does actually rule this is unconstitutional, do you think the state will still uh, pursue it possibly on under the, the Supreme Court? I, I, you know, again, it's it's hard to um, it's hard to know what right. the thinking will be at that point. But I think it certainly will be something where I think we sh we will likely see bills come back in the uh, upcoming legislative mm -hmm. session that will address these issues and perhaps some other fashion as as you say, Ryan, maybe a more uh, narrowed scope. Uh, but I don't think the issue goes away in terms of just if this is dispatched through the courts that we won't talk about it again or have that conversation. Uh, it'll just have to take a different uh, it'll have to take a different turn in, in terms of uh, uh, what will be needed to ultimately um, pass these kind of uh, legal challenges. Well, when you look at some of the scenarios that Judge Cothran pointed out in her uh, in her memorandum that accompanied the order, uh, you know, just approaching a vehicle walking as you're walking down a sidewalk, um, you know, if it's, you know, somewhere attendant to a protest, you know, could be seen as a violation of this law uh, and subject you to criminal prosecution. And, and that puts an enormous when you when you have a, a window that big, um, you know, it. it stops becoming a window and becomes a door for prosecutors and law enforcement to enforce it arbitrarily. And that is it's a real issue. I think that um, conservatives would be wise to remember that uh, they protest too. Uh, they, they, have, they show up at the Capitol, they do, and sometimes they have folks that, that uh, get unruly uh, in their protest. Do, do they really want a law like this um, that, would, uh, that would also potentially uh, entrap them in criminal liability where there was really you know no criminal liability to be found for that particular individual so this goes both ways i know that these laws are a response to the blm racial justice protest uh, over the summer of 2020 uh, but when we talk about the right to protest that belongs to all of us uh, you know regardless of where you fall in the political spectrum yeah laws do not need to be unconstitutional unconstitutionally vague and raise 
questions, more questions than they answer in a piece of legislation. And I think this is what has to be um, has to be explored and ultimately decided by this uh, federal dis- federal judge. The Centers for Disease Control approved COVID-19 vaccines for children ages 5 to 11. Oklahoma officials had said they were ready to begin vaccinating younger children as soon as final approval was given, so shots could get underway quickly. This comes with news that COVID-19 is now in the top 10 for deaths among children. Neva, do you think Oklahomans will get their kids vaccinated? Well, again, I think it's a personal choice. I think the state uh, has indicated that uh, they have uh, they've ordered and will have available in in the next couple of weeks 130,000 doses, um, and that uh, when you look at the number of children in this age group in Oklahoma, that number is about 375,000. I think we will see, uh, in all likelihood, just like we've seen in the adult population, people will make a determination, parents will decide. Uh, what is best for their child and uh, move forward accordingly. And I think that's the way it should happen. And so I think um, uh, there clearly are, uh, there are a sufficient number, it would appear, uh, 1,800, I think is the number that I saw, vaccine providers that can, uh, that can do this. That's pharmacies, doctor's offices, local health departments. So there, there are things in place to be able to efficiently move forward, make this available to parents who want to vaccinate their children. Ryan. Well, as the the dad of a six-year-old and a Mm 10-year-old, I can tell you we've been waiting for this day in our household for a very long time. Um, My my daughter, uh, both my kids go to Oklahoma City Public Schools and, you know, just a a big shout out to all the the folks uh, that do just wonderful work at Oklahoma City Public Schools. This is one of the most difficult challenges that they've had to go through. And uh, Ms. Stafford, her uh, principal at, at Cleveland Elementary, called us a couple of weeks back because my daughter had had close contact with somebody. So we had to go through the quarantine process. And, um, you know, in addition to just being uh, inconvenient, it's also scary mm-hmm. uh, as a parent. Um, and, you know, to know that even though children have by and large uh, been spared the worst in many instances, uh, but it's it's not guaranteed. And then there's also the issue of them becoming transmitters to more vulnerable populations, whether that's the the teachers in their school, or when we go to Seminole to see my 94-year-old grandmother, she's going to be mad that I mentioned that she's 94-year-old, uh, 94, <laughs> 94 years old on the radio. But when we go to Seminole to see my, yeah, when we go to Sem- I think so, uh, she sure acts like it. When we go to Seminole to see my nan, even though she's vaccinated. Uh, it's great to know that this Thanksgiving, by this Thanksgiving, uh, both of my kids are going to be vaccinated. I, I highly encourage folks to you know, look at look at the data. This, uh, this has been studied. It's safe. And it's one of the best things that we can do to protect ourselves, protect our kids and everybody else that they come in contact with. Governor Stitt headed to Mexico this week to talk about a possible consulate in Oklahoma City. The nation of Mexico picked Oklahoma City as one of two new spots for consulates in the United States. The offices would help Mexican citizens get identification, employment, property documents, and other documents. Ryan, why pick Oklahoma City for its consulate? Well, we we have a a burgeoning uh, population of Mexican-American citizens in Oklahoma. You know, whether they are uh, immigrants that are here, whether they were born here but have family in Mexico and they need to travel back and forth. I mean, there are a number of reasons uh, that make this a, a really big move for Oklahoma City um, and a big recognition of the Hispanic population in Oklahoma and the Mexican-American population in Oklahoma and how the important role that they're playing uh, in our community. 
you know, I, I'm grateful that the governor has, has taken this trip. You know, I, I think that uh, oftentimes, you know, we are, we have these heuristics in our brain that, that help us uh, understand really difficult and complex issues. And, and those aren't always all that helpful. Uh, and, and sometimes they can calcify really bad uh, ideas or decisions. Um, but going down to Mexico, visiting with, with um, uh, Oklahoma-owned businesses that are doing business in Mexico, visiting with uh, Mexican politicians uh, and elected officials um, and, and embassy officials, I, I hope that the governor comes away with it with a better sense of you know, what Mexico means for Oklahoma and what Oklahoma can mean for Mexico. Um, and you know, this can be an important step in a more productive relationship, not just for Mexican-Americans that are in Oklahoma, but for, for everybody uh, that lives here. Neva. Oh, I think that's right. It is it is a uh, an issue that's important. I think this official visit that the uh, state visit that the governor took not only strengthened diplomatic uh, relationships, but also these economic partnerships that uh, that uh, we've talked about. You know, it's sometimes lost on folks that Mexico is the second largest export partner and the third largest import partner with with Mexico. I mean, we have 17 Oklahoma companies that have their major primary location now headquartered in Mexico, and they employ more than 7,000 Oklahomans. So, I mean, these are these are significant numbers. This is something that I think any governor has to uh, uh, be cognizant of. And, and certainly when we look at the city of Oklahoma City, I mean, we have 106,000 residents, according to uh, uh, Mayor Holt's tweet that he put out uh, in advance of when this, uh, when this uh, news of the uh, the opening of a new consulate here in Oklahoma City would take place. And so I think anyone involved in the governing process is, uh, is, is aware of this and sees the importance of this. I mean, what, right now in Oklahoma, if you maintain um, uh, your Mexican citizenship, you have to drive to Little Rock is the closest location mm. to get a thing like a passport or if you have legal or financial documents that have to be executed. I mean, that is um, uh, it, that needs to change. And this is welcome news, I think, to see that Oklahoma now will have a, a consulate here. And I think the other thing is, I mean, the governor clearly has been working uh, in a recent visit. He met with the uh, Mexican ambassador when he was in Washington, D.C. He has hosted uh, uh, he's hosted. Uh, um, you know, the the consular general from Mexico here uh, back uh, uh, with a uh, honoring of one of the uh, Mexican artists here in Oklahoma. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, there has been, you know, there's been a strong working partnership develop. And as Ryan said, I think the fact that they went to Monterey for a day and, uh, you know, looked at business recruitments, these educational opportunities and partnerships with the university in Monterey. I mean, those are all positives long-term in the discussion of, uh, you know, not only uh, stronger economic uh, development opportunities, but uh, just the strengthening of the diplomatic uh, aspect as well. Ryan and Eva's comments do not necessarily reflect the views of KOSU, its staff, or management. Programs like this are made possible through support from KOSU members who are listeners like you. Consider a gift to KOSU in support of This Week in Oklahoma Politics at KOSU.org.